0: And if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to the book of Daniel. We're going to continue in that book again this week. And we're going to start out by talking about something that we're all way too familiar with because of what took place in about 2020. And it's called a pandemic. A pandemic pandemic. What is a pandemic? Well, a pandemic can be defined a lot of ways, but a good, simple definition is it's an outbreak of disease that occurs over a wide geographic area, usually over countries and continents. Usually we see much of the population affected by a pandemic. Usually there is great sickness and loss of life. And usually there's person-to-person transmission as part of, of what is defined as a pandemic. Now, a lot of the pandemics that we've seen throughout history, and they go back centuries, probably the worst has been the bubonic plague, or the plague, or the black plague, the dark plague. It reoccurred at least three times throughout history, and estimates are up to 200 million people may have died by bubonic plague. A couple of the more recent plagues that are sort of ongoing... The HIV, AIDS plague, the pandemic, it's estimated that it's killed somewhere between 30 and 40 million people since 1981. Most of the deaths are now occurring in Africa, but it's ongoing. And then most of us, or all of us, live through COVID-19. COVID-19, again, a worldwide event. Estimates, again, there are a little bit hard to nail down because they, they categorize them as COVID-related, but some of the estimates are up to 7, 8 million people from these diseases. And because of the symptoms of most of these diseases in these pandemics, they were very obvious that there was something going on. But I think one of the greatest pandemics, and the one I'm going to be talking about today, is a much more insidious disease, a much more insidious pandemic. And that word insidious, I like it, by the way, can you tell? But I had to look it up to make sure I knew what I was talking about. But I love these words because they describe what I want to talk about today so well. Insidious, defined as deceitful, cunning, treacherous, unpleasant, dangerous, gradually and secretly causing harm an insidious pandemic. It's at work. The consequences of it are taking place, but it's so hidden that we don't notice it almost until it's too late. The title of my message is Continuation of the Series Heaven Rules, and the title this week is The Pandemic of Pride. How many of us think of pride as a pandemic? Not only is it Worse, it's more prevalent than any of these other pandemics. This issue of pride has been around since the Garden of Eden. When Satan came as a snake to tempt Adam and Eve, he tempted him with a piece of fruit. But the real issue was the pride. Has God really held back something from you? He's keeping you away from something that would make you be more like him. And in their pride, they took the fruit. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail talking about and trying to decide, is there such a thing as good pride? Oh, I'm so proud of you. Or is all pride evil? I think if we would use a different word and say, instead of, I'm so proud of you, I'd I'd be happier with it. But I'm going to focus more, and I want you to know this. When I'm talking about pride, I am talking about pride that leads to sin. And I would be able, in my mind anyway, to make a good argument that all sin, all sin emanates from pride. Pride is the root. And it is such an insidious thing. There are lots of things that you and I suffer with that are caused by pride, that we would even know or recognize the fact that what's driving this thing in our life, and I often call them strongholds, is a root of pride. I remember many years ago, someone gave me a classic little book, and I, I was reading through the book, and the whole book was about dying to self. And it came to this issue of manifestations of pride, that we don't see as pride. And the one that struck me the most was being shy. And I stopped and I reread that and I reread that and reread that. And I'm thinking, how can my shyness be prideful? I have never thought of my being shy as sin. But as I was thinking about it and meditating on it, it, I became to understand and realize the shyness is what manifests that most people see the consequence of. I maybe just call it an introvert. And I do realize we have different personalities, right? Some of us are much more extroverted and outgoing. Some of us are much more introverted and not quite so outgoing. But my shyness came out of this. If I stay sort of hidden and invisible, no one will recognize all my faults and failures and frailties. In other words, They won't see those things that I don't want them to see. So maybe they'll think more highly of me than I deserve. Pride manifesting in my life. What is pride? Here's a definition for you that is a dictionary one, and then I'll give you a practical one. It's a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, owns importance, merit, or superiority, whether it's cherished in the mind or displaced, in bearing or conduct. Let's look at it this way. Pride is to say what I want, how I perceive things, how I want to be treated, how I expect myself to treat others Others is the highest measure of how things ought to be done. That one's much more understandable to me. I could just even shrink it down even further and say, pride is my way's the best way, and I know better than anybody else And I wish you'd get it because you'd feel better about yourselves just like I do. How many of us know that we can easily recognize that kind of pride in other people? How many know people that are prideful? Go ahead and raise your hands once. Go ahead. Come on. I want to talk to some of you that don't raise your hand because I want to meet those people you hang with. It is easy to see this kind of pride in other people. It's kind of an arrogant, selfish Self-serving thing. At the very least. Very least. They're, ma- they're amazingly annoying to be around. And as easy as this to see that kind of pride in other people. It's equally as difficult to see that pride in ourselves. Which is the manifestation of pride. Man, am I glad I'm not like them. They ought to be more like me. More humble, something to be proud of. We don't see it in ourselves as easily as we should. We don't realize we're going through our life much of the time unaware of how prideful our own opinions are, our own merit, how how good we think we are, our integrity, how amazingly holy and righteous we are. We go through life walking that way and everybody else or a lot of people are looking at us and holy moly, I can't stand being around that person. They are so filled with pride. How many of us enjoy immensely or even a little bit being around those people we just described, the prideful, the arrogant? I don't. Most of us don't. And if being around prideful people and seeing pride that relevant bugs us that, that much, how much do you think it hurts God to see his children living prideful lives? Thank goodness he's got way more grace and way more mercy than I often demonstrate. His mercy and his grace. He knows we're prideful. He created us. But he also created us in a way not to be prideful, to be humble, to walk before him. We have that ability. It's from him. The last few weeks, we've been focusing on Daniel and a little bit on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what I've really been trying to focus on primarily is the idea, here's a demonstration of how these men, young men, when they first were taken into exile, lived as exiles in a foreign country and yet demonstrated humility and commitment to the Lord to such a degree that God received glory and honor from it. Think about it. The way they chose to live these centuries and centuries ago, we are still talking about today. How many of us are going to have our lifestyles and the way we live talked about even six months from now, ten years from now? Probably not Too many of us, except maybe from some closest friends and family. We've been focusing on that humility. Well, today I'm going to flip the coin over and we're going to look at some prideful people. People we've talked about, at least one of them, we've talked about King Nebuchadnezzar. And this week we're going to be talking a little bit more about King Belshazzar. And we're going to see how ugly a picture or portrait of pride is presented to us through these men. And I think one of the things we should see is how quickly and easily they forgot three very, very, very important principles that we all need to also be reminded of. For example, number one principle seeing that everything they possessed belonged to God and came from God. Everything. These kings, when you read the book of Daniel, they were amazingly powerful, amazingly wealthy. Their empires extended hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Everything was given to them by God. Good reminder for us, everything belongs to him. Second principle, they were not able to see, at least for very long, that God was the supreme power of the world and that they were dependent upon Him for every single breath they take. Again, we take so many things for granted. We say the right words, everything belongs to God, it's all His. And then we talk about my this, my that, my house, my car, my this, go on, my degrees. Wait a minute, it's all his. And we act as if we're going to live forever, realizing even every breath we take is a gift from God. And the third principle, they failed to see that the God who raised them up into this position of authority is also the God who could remove that authority and take them down as quickly as he would want to. He not only controlled the expanse of their empires, he controlled the length of their reign. And we're going to see that really clearly demonstrated with Belshazzar. So, keeping those three things in mind and helping to make application to our own lives, we're going to go to chapter 5 in the book of Daniel. And I want to set the scene just a little bit for this, and I want to give you a little bit of a heads up. If you're reading the book of Daniel, and I hope you are, chapter four's got a great story I'd love to spend all day talking about, but we're just going to barely touch on it. But it is not, the whole book of Daniel is not in chronological order. And sometimes that can confuse us when we're reading the book. So far, chapters one, two, three, four are chronological in order. But all of a sudden, chapter 5 is moved back a little ways. It actually goes from 4 to 7 and 8, where you'll see Daniel had some amazing end-time dreams. And then it comes back to chapter 5. And then it goes on 9, then 6, and then it finishes 10, 11, 12. I tell you those things, just because you're reading it, it can be a little confusing because all of a sudden, Belshazzar has been dealt with by the Lord, and then we're talking about in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, chapter 7 and 8 start that way. Back in chapter 5, Belshazzar's toast, gone. Okay, having said that, I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, one more heads up, father in those times was meant for, could be used for generations. The reality is Belshazzar's grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar, okay, that Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and all his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and of silver and of bronze and of iron and of wood and of stone. And then that word, suddenly. This is a drunken party that a very proud, egotistical, narcissistic king named Belshazzar was putting on to impress the nobles invites a thousand of them and in this drunken state he decides one more thing we need to do is bring in the vessels that were from the temple of God and drink out of them and then they didn't only drink out of them they started praising all these other gods and then the word suddenly shows up And it says, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king, I think he sobered up quick, watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. That's a interesting picture. Believe it or not, there's even a couple translations say he messed himself whatever the case this hand had his attention suddenly when we look at this this party there's something right beneath the surface that I think we can miss they're drinking out of the vessels that were set apart and holy for God's temple drinking out of them these pagan people And not only are they drinking out of them, they're praising these gods made by man. But there's a symbolism there that we can miss. The symbolism would be this. They were able to praise those gods because in their mind, because of the symbolism that they actually had these vessels. They had went and conquered Jerusalem and raided the temple and brought all those vessels back to Babylon And if this God that the Hebrews served was really all he's cracked up to be, according to the Hebrews, that shouldn't have been possible. But they went in, and by the power and the blessing of their gods, defeated the Hebrews and took their vessels. So as they're doing this, drinking of these vessels, it's proof and evidence in their mind that all these gods made by man are superior to the Hebrew God. And then all of a sudden, there's a hand floating around. No body attached, just a hand writing on the wall. In my mind, God says, enough is enough. Enough is enough. And he's going to deal with this right now. Well, the next few verses we read, Belshazzar, just like Nebuchadnezzar had done in the past, he calls in all his wise men, all of his astrologers, all of these uh, sorcerers, all of these people, and says, what are those words, and what do they mean? And just like it happened before in Daniel's life when Nebuchadnezzar was king, no one knew. No one could read the words, no one could tell him the meaning, and we read, that he even got more pale, and his legs got even weaker. And he's about to collapse or drop dead right there out of fear. And then all of a sudden, the queen shows up. And the queen, I'm going to read in verse 11. And what I want you to notice here is how the queen of this pagan king describes this man named Daniel. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what those words mean. Daniel's reputation, many, many years later, after he had ministered under Nebuchadnezzar, This evil queen still knows. And so should have Belshazzar. And it's as if Daniel is going to remind Belshazzar of everything that Daniel did when his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar was king. He reminds him. For us, it was back in Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream. And no one could interpret it. No one could tell him the dream. He made it really tough. Tell me the dream, then give me the interpretation. And when no one could, he went nuts. He was enraged, and he he sent out an edict that everybody, all the wise men, had to be killed. David Daniel wasn't even present. It wasn't his fault. And the knock on his door—it's by the executioner saying, I'm "Sorry, but y'all gonna die." Remember what Daniel did? He stayed calm, cool, and collected prayed to his God, the Hebrew God. God gave him the dream and gave him the interpretation of the dream. And he went and told Nebuchadnezzar this. And Nebuchadnezzar briefly honored the God of Daniel and Daniel was blessed and prospered. And then in Daniel 4, the chapter we're not going to spend too much time on, but I encourage you to read the story there. Nebuchadnezzar forgot quite quickly what humility was about. And he had another dream. This time, the dream was about a tree, and this monstrous tree provided shade and food for all the world, quote-unquote, at that time, and he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, that tree is you. That's how awesome and amazing you are, but Daniel got the interpretation, and in humility went and gave the interpretation, knowing that this was not going to be a good news report to the king. He says, because that tree is going to be cut down, the stump will remain. Your kingdom is going to be taken away from you. You're going to go a little crazy. You're going to go out and live like an animal and have the mind of an animal. And you're going to live like that for seven years. But the stump was left telling us that your kingdom will one day be restored. It's like he's saying, Belshazzar, remember these stories about your grandfather? Remember the Hebrew God who did these things? He says, even Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm going to drop back to chapter 4, verse 26. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognized this God, and this is what he said. When all of this had completed itself, and he was back in power and authority, and he was through eating grass, The command to leave the stump of the tree with his roots means your kingdom will be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. God was in his patience and his mercy demonstrating and trying to demonstrate and teach, convince Nebuchadnezzar that there was a God in heaven who was different than all these man made gods. He was the one who was only, he was the only one worthy of worship. He was the source of everything. He demonstrated with these unbelievable dreams and acts, supernatural acts. And it's again here as if Daniel's saying, remember these things, Belshazzar? You should know better. And these are the words that Nebuchadnezzar spoke. Twelve months after this took place, twelve months after he had taken this warning, the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he said, isn't this the great Babylon? Babylon that I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Well, guess what? That's when the tree got cut down. That's when he was sent off. And one of the things we need to also realize, I think, for the story for Belshazzar, it appears that Daniel has kind of been off the scene. We read in chapter 7 and 8, he had some major dreams given to him by God about end times. But as far as they're concerned, it kind of been relegated to being irrelevant. And if you remember, under Nebuchadnezzar, he was one of the most powerful men in all of Babylon. Daniel is probably in his mid-70s by now, when this is taking place. But now they call for Daniel. Belshazzar has been reminded of all of these things. And now they call for Daniel. Now, if you and I are Daniel, we could go so many directions with this. You could say, really? I'm 75 years old now. Nobody's paid any attention to me for decades. This is at least the third king that I've been here under. I think I'm busy. I got nothing. Or even better, this would probably be the way I'd think. You're in trouble. You need me. I want a better deal. We're going to renegotiate this. I know you promised some fancy jewelry and a few things, but I want more than that. Daniel didn't do that. Daniel's not like that. The third option was Daniel humbling himself, being bought out of this irrelevant position he'd been sitting in for decades. And he comes and serves this evil king, this pagan king. How could he do that? Why would he do that? Because he knows heaven rules. He knows God's at work. He may not understand what's happening, but he knows God's doing something. So he comes. I'm going to read verses 21. And I think I'll read to verse 30. But I feel sorry for everybody. The big clock's gone. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived in the wild with the wild donkeys. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of the morning, of dew of heaven, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdom of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. So once again, he's reminding Belshazzar, and he says, But you, his son, O Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. He knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had the goblets from His temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank the wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, and wood, and stone, which cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote this inscription and this is what he wrote mene mene takal peraz and this is what those words mean god has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end mene takal you have been weighed on the scales and you have found been found wanting peraz Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the land. That's the shortest gift you're ever going to receive. Because that very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of sixty-two. What happened? Belshazzar was having a blast. He was throwing a big party. It was a drunken, rowdy mess. Took out the the vessels from God's temple in Jerusalem to show off even more. Praise these gods. And he knew all of the experiences. Belshazzar knew all the experiences that Nebuchadnezzar had had with the God of heaven, the God who rules. Their pride and their arrogance was overwhelming. There was a time when Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed the God of heaven, the only God worthy of worship and adoration. You might even think he was saved at that time. We don't really know. But it didn't take him long. And I tell you, pride is insidious in our lives just like that. About the time we think we've discovered an area of our life and the Lord is working on it, and finally there's a breaking and we can actually show some humility and walk in humility without it even being an effort because we're just trusting God and being obedient to God. Knowing that it's not about me, as was said earlier today, it's all about Him. It's not about us. Everything we have belongs to Him. Everything we are and everything we do is a gift from Him. He can take it as quickly as He gives it. And we're always just that one breath, one heartbeat away from eternity. We don't know the day or the hour. But our pride is constantly trying to attack us. Constantly. It's a pandemic that's not going to end until Jesus comes back for his church. We are going to be battling it continuously. And the thoughts and what God thinks of pride well, you don't have to go far in scriptures. I'm going to just put a few scriptures on the board quickly as I get ready to close here. But God hates pride. He hates it. If you don't believe me? Here's what it says. Proverbs 8, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Proverbs 11:2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. 16:5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will go, not go unpunished. In some text, scriptures or some translations, that word is, it's an abomination to him. Sixteen, eighteen. Pride, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Church, God is not out to hurt our pride. He's out to kill it. He wants to kill our pride. Everything we have, everything is from him. Everything we are is from him. It's so easy and and we're so quick to start taking credit for things. Or the symptoms are more insidious and all of a sudden we think these things over here are okay, but they're really strongholds bound and rooted to pride. The root needs to be dealt with. You know, we, we had a big battle that still is ongoing over vaccines. Well, there's only one vaccine for this kind of pride and sin in our life, and that's Jesus Christ and the blood, the blood of Christ. It's by his grace and mercy. Pride is serious. God's opposed to the proud. How many of us want to be on the opposite team than God? I'm not very smart, but I know which captain I want. James 4, 6, he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to his humble. You know, God in his mercy, is, as long as our path is walking towards that humility, we're, we're working as the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. He's going to walk alongside us. You know, it seems like his judgment on, on the king was so sudden and quick. But if you don't remember, all of the stuff that he knew about is really an act of mercy that he's finally said, this is enough. It's enough. And thank goodness with us, he's very patient and he's very merciful. And he will walk with us as we walk that path from pride to humility, walking in brokenness instead of arrogance. Luke fourteen eleven. for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. We have two examples of two kings who resisted. God will humble us by his Holy Spirit. Thankfully, he's a good God. He's long-suffering. He's patient, merciful, and extends grace. Those strongholds that are established in our lives, some of those things have got deep roots of pride. But he will remove them as we cooperate with him. The key, of course, is always the same. Jesus Christ. If we've not accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it's going to be an effort of the flesh that will lead to nothing but frustration. Frustration. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's step one. Because then the Holy Spirit moves in and lives within us. And now we have the power of God living in us to help us, to teach us, to train us, to transform us. If you've never experienced that kind of transformation because you've never accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's what you need to do first. And that's a simple step, a simple process, acknowledging our sin and acknowledging the things that we talked about during communion, there's only one way for them to be paid, and that's to accept Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then surrender our lives to him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today, the blessings of today. I pray you would continue to teach us and guide us, continue to reveal to us those areas of our lives that we are so deceived, that we don't even see pride. God, we want to be on your side. We are your sons and daughters, but we do not want you to resist us in any way. And we don't want to resist you. So, Lord, I pray you would give us all the grace that's needed to overcome, see, and then overcome those areas of pride by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you call us sons and daughters. In spite of all of our shortcomings, it's a demonstration of the un- unconditional love that you have for us. And we thank you and praise you for that. Now, Lord, I pray as we go, we continue to go about our day and this week. I pray, God, that you will bring these things to our remembrance. But you will also lead and guide and direct us that we may be able to share the love of Jesus, the hope that we have as Christians in a world that's filled with chaos, short on hope. Father, let us be your light. Let us be that salt. Give us words to speak when we don't know what to say. Give us opportunities to show love. Pray your protection over us. We continue to pray for all of the graduates that are celebrating their graduations. We pray for safe travels for all of those. And, Lord, we've got a number of weddings coming up in the next few weeks. God, we pray for each one of those couples. God, we thank you and praise you for bringing people together, creating family. We ask now that all we do brings glory and honor to you in Jesus' name. Amen.